Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're discussing pages 174 to 192 of VRT. And we happen to be recording this on the anniversary of Clay Temple Media's very first podcast episode. And I wanted to take a minute here at the top of the show to look at what we've done in that year. We've published 11 episodes of Agnes, our ancient and medieval history podcast. We've published 21 episodes of Lower Decks, which is our Star Trek Discovery show. And we've published 42 episodes of this show, including our very first live show from LaughCon. Plus, we've done 16 episodes on our Patreon podcast, which brings us to a grand total of uh, 90 episodes in our first year of podcasting, which is to say an average of 1.7 episodes per week which I think is not bad. So, Brandon, I just wanted to say cheers to a job that uh, I hope people think was well done. <laughs> I'm really glad you kept track of that because I just do this every week and it's it's a huge joy. It's a lot of fun. Um, but to really look back at what we've done in the past year, I'm I'm proud of what we've accomplished so far. And I'm grateful for all of our listeners of all of our podcasts who have hung in there with us as we've learned the craft and gotten to read some really great stories and watch some really great TV. All of the work that goes into that has been an absolute joy. We're looking forward to continuing this endeavor long into the future. And in fact, we've got some exciting announcements to make in the next few episodes. We absolutely do. So stay tuned for those. But this episode, we still have some work to do on VRT, the last of the novellas in the great trilogy of novellas, Fifth Head of Cerberus. Last episode in our recap, we discussed, as Glenn said, pages 174 to 192 of the story VRT. And this episode, we'll be discussing some of the things we brought up in that episode. Again, I want to point out that this is this is really a plot-heavy section of the yarn. There's a lot of story, a lot of events taking place. A few puzzles and mysteries have been revealed and opened, but there's not much in the way at least in the way that we've seen in the past two novellas, to really unpack. There's not a lot of illusions. There's not a lot of philosophical muck to kind of go through. It's really just a fantastic story about a man who is objectively gazing upon this box of documents for a prisoner to make some sort of judgment. The nature of the judgment, we don't even know what it could be. So I think the first thing we need to do is just tackle this odd arrest scene to talk about Sanqua's legal system in some way. First, to see what is going on with the prisoner. Is this prisoner just really confused and lost and insane? And maybe the answer to that is yes, perhaps it's no. But also to see if we can actually glean any information about what type of review this box is under, because this seems like an official legal process. But what we get in this arrest scene would never lead me to believe that anybody would ever objectively look over any of these facts. This is like the way Dumas dramatizes the French Revolution or the um, post-Napoleonic War, or after Napoleon the Napoleonic Wars in France in something like The Three Musketeers or The Count of Monte Cristo. This is just dark and macabre. Somebody could be put away in prison for no reason. I I certainly didn't have a sense that the justice system was this crazy in Fifth Head of Cerberus. I mean, we knew it was corrupt. 
due to the fact that the Maison du Chien runs on bribes and corruption of city officials. But ultimately, number five is justly punished for murdering his father, or at least that's the inference in the book, that number five goes to jail as a result of the murder of his father. But the picture we get here is that everyone who works for the civil service is occasionally a police officer and can arrest any person at will. To me, that seems insane. As we brought up in the recap, the laws are designed to be ignored by citizens, but then they can be turned and used against them at any time. And again, there's no presumption of innocence. So how do you think this enhances our understanding of saint Croix, especially as we've seen a main character interact with the legal system in the past? Not only does it seem that the murderer of the master of the Maison de Chien is rightfully punished. He is also released from his prison in the mountains after a a good amount of time, uh, nine years he's in prison. That's probably less time than a murderer would serve in jail in our own system. So he's not only rightfully punished, he's deemed to have been rehabilitated and he is now released back into society. That seems almost like a kind of enlightened prison system. That is in stark contrast here to this system in which there are formal rules for what happens if Dr. Marsh is detained for questioning for 50 years, for five times the amount of time that our narrator, number five, is actually in jail for murder in the first novella. The two systems seem incongruous to me. And so I'm not really quite sure how to take all of this that's happening in VRT. But I do also think that you're absolutely right here to be invoking the long shadow of 19th century and and even 18th century French literature. We saw the Marquis de Sade reference in the text. We pointed out that that is a story that was written in the Bastille, which is most famous to uh, people now as being the fortress in which political prisoners were kept and the storming of that prison to release those prisoners is an important event in the French Revolution. And of course, you also brought up Dumas, whose story, The Man in the Iron Mask, is also very much taken up with uh, uh, stories in, in, in prison and also a question of who is the person who is in prison and uh, is that person perhaps uh, the rightful ruler of something, which is another question that has been uh raised in this section of VRT as well. So I think here that perhaps the difference in the tone or the difference even in the information that we get about the justice system in the two stories is that Wolf is doing two very different things with them. But Wolf is also never sloppy with his world building. So both of these things, both of these systems have to be true. Both of them have to be existing here in the same world. I am having some difficulty with that, and maybe you can shed some light on it. You brought up in the recap that you have reason to question the prison narrative of Marsh at this point in the story in terms of its truthfulness or objective objective truthfulness. And I had no reason to really doubt the truthfulness of the narrative until I started really looking at the way that he is describing his stay in prison, the legal system, 
the fact that his case is under review, that he was formally arrested. Last episode, we went through the kind of logical argument he would make in his defense and the fact that his sense of time is scattered, that there's something broken in his mind. And I I do wonder now if maybe this prison narrative is a bit of a dry run for a kind of revolutionary prison story, the type of which he seems to admire as is evident in his line about all revolutions being started in prison in a story by John V. Marsh. And if these notebooks are not just him practicing, ridiculing, and satirizing the political system on San Croix. And you had mentioned in the last section that because of that line in a story by John V. Marsh, that you were beginning to suspect that that story was written here in, in this prison. I'm going to reserve judgment on that. I'm a very skeptical person uh, by nature and always want to question how much we really know versus how much we're inferring from a text. But it does seem to be a theme that Wolf is working with here. This does seem to be a story about politics and about prisons and about political prisoners in some way, even if we ourselves as the readers yet have no idea what is even at stake, what the conflicts are here. Someone in this prison, prisoner 47 at least, knows what's going on, knows what the political crisis is here on San Croix and is very interested in it. And is even, uh, if if he can be trusted to be telling the truth, uh, a member of some kind of political revolutionary group called the 5th of September. Right. And I can't emphasize this enough that we are meant to be in the mind of the objective observer, though we have no idea of the context of a lot of these documents, though we have some because we've read the other two novellas in this trilogy. The fact that we are meant to be examining this for its veracity is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the information we get from the documents that are presented to us. And so because the story is being written in that mode, we should automatically be skeptical of all the information we are receiving. Supposedly, presumably, any officer who cares about some form of justice on their outpost, and this is me just taking what I've learned from Graham Greene novels and <laughs> applying it here, would look at this box of evidence and say, this has been a huge miscarriage of justice. This is not how we do things. This is not the law. No matter how despicable their own personal life is, it's that duty that always characterizes the officer in the outpost doing his work as a diplomat or a bureaucrat in some way. And so I just still wonder maybe what we're supposed to be learning about the frame story from this type of satirization, perhaps, or the slow creeping insanity of the narrator of these texts. If we are meant to be the observer, if we're meant to be in the mind of the officer reviewing these documents, what is the contrast there between what we know and what is in the documents. In other words, Glenn, does reading Marsh's account tell you anything about the actual objective world the officer is living in? 
We've seen already how quickly the officer tires of reading one particular set of papers or uh, journal here, which is, you know, a very nice literary device that Wolf is using. But within the reality of this world, I have to think that if the officer, upon reading all of this narrative about this elaborate set of rules uh, about how long a person can be detained for questioning uh, and and the circumstances of Dr. Marsh's arrest that if the officer had read all of that and 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 said well that none of that is true that's not how any person winds up in one of our prisons those aren't the rules that we have those are not our laws would have set that down and read something else because what is the utility of reading this fanciful account. It's not actually going to help him do the job that he's supposed to be doing, which we should remind ourselves as well as listeners is to determine whether or not the person who wrote these documents or the the person they have imprisoned is from Earth or is from St. Anne. But I still maintain that this system seems, one, just utterly absurd to begin with, and two, doesn't seem to jive with what we saw in the fifth head of Cerberus. But something that we haven't talked about yet is that Dr. Marsh is not a citizen of San Croix. So the rights that he can expect from the legal system on San Croix may be totally different from what the narrator of the fifth head of Cerberus can expect. And there may also be, in addition to distinction between their legal relationship or their citizenship status within the state of San Croix, there may also be a huge distinction in their social status, their their social class. Whether or not he's a murderer, whether or not the family money comes from running the brothel, the narrator of the fifth head of Cerberus is a wealthy person. He seems to be in a different social class. He is also someone who is well-connected to politicians who come to that brothel and may simply be living in a different legal system than Dr. Marsh has access to on this planet. I think that's a brilliant point. The idea that the fact that Marsh is not a citizen of San Croix is really sharp. It's not something that I had considered before, but it also falls neatly in line with this novella, this whole novel being lumped in with the kind of post-colonial school of thought I think we we take for granted now that people can travel through most of the world and expect that if they get in trouble, a representative of their government will be able to help them out in some way. They'll if they lose their passport in a foreign country, they won't they don't expect to be taken into police and taken into prison and be bribed for all their money and, and be forced to rot in prison in some way. That in most countries you can register for a new visa or get a passport renewed from the local consulate or whatever you need. None of that seems to be the case here. In fact, a violent war was fought, perhaps on both of these planets, over what nationality is the winning nationality, even though they're both both Western and European in some way. Uh, the fact that that if an American were to be arrested in a foreign country, as we've seen in Iran or North Korea, uh, that they simply do not have the same rights. And most countries work together when a citizen is arrested 
unduly in another country because it's good policy, you're subject to the laws of the country you're in when you're visiting somewhere else. So I think that's an exceptional point, and that really could account for most of what we're seeing here. And if you're the officer in charge of examining this case, you'd say, yeah, maybe that's not great what happened to this guy, but he's not a citizen, and it certainly is within the rights of our secret police or whatever uh, organization handles these type of people to be searched to see if when they were at the scene of a crime, whether or not there's any involvement there, what's going on, and they have no rights. And it may very well be that the whole purpose, the whole reason that this officer has these documents, right? We know it's to determine whether or not this prisoner, Dr. Marsh, is from Earth or St. Anne. The reason that question might matter is because there are different rules. If he's from St. Anne, they have to treat him some way. He He's ruled by some other set of laws. If he's from Earth, it's a whole different set. That really might be what the officer is trying to determine. How can we treat this prisoner? He claims he's from Earth. If he is, we have to do X. But he came here physically from St. Anne by his own admission. If he is a citizen of St. Anne, then we can do set of things Y to him. I think that right now seems to be what the officer is up to. And we should also say that this is a society that clearly has criminal law, but also has a set of laws that are about things that are political violations. So this is not a society that tolerates things like freedom of of speech, freedom of the press. You can be arrested for your political opinions here, and it's totally okay. But there are two different sets of rules, for one for political prisoners and one for criminal prisoners. And I think that helps clear up a lot of what we're seeing in this story, though I still think this narrator, Marsh's encounter with the legal system so far has been meant to be a kind of Kafkaesque satire of the either practice of the system of law or a kind of dry run at satirizing this system of law. But I think because you brought it up, we have to ask the question now of why the officer is in conflict about this question. And this comes up in the interlude in this section. You said, Glenn, and you brought up, and it's clear in the text that it's at least because he he thinks they're kind of written by two different people. The, the, The other officer comes in the room and asks our point of view character, what the notebook is. And he asks if it's the accused's notebook. And our officer, our point of view character, only says, I think so. The other officer raises his eyebrows and says, you don't know? And then our character says, I'm not sure. Sometimes I think that notebook... And then he drifts off and never continues. So now's the time where we get to speculate about what is after that ellipsis in my mind is sometimes i think that notebook was written by someone else what are your thoughts about what he's saying there and why do you think wolf is trailing off there why do you think he's not giving us an answer if we're supposed to be in the mind of this observer of evidence the simplest answer of course is that 
Wolf never likes to come out and say anything straight. He wants to hint and suggest things to us to force us to make our own inferences. He wants to plant seeds of doubt for us to start thinking what even might be going on here in the story. But this also is true to the way that the officer or anyone else would operate. It, it, this sort of thing would start with a vague suspicion that something's not quite right, that you can't actually quite finish that sentence. Sometimes I think this notebook, I, I, I don't know, but something's not quite right with that notebook. Something about what the text in this notebook doesn't seem to jive with the texts of these other things that I'm looking at. The uh, prison narrative and the St. Anne narrative seem to be different somehow. Or the St. Anne narrative, the voice behind that journal, seems to be different from the voice he hears speaking on these interview tapes. But we don't always know how when we notice those things. And we often, we have, we make an inference or we have a suspicion, an intuition really is the word I'm, I'm looking for here, that makes us pause. And then our rational mind goes to work to think about what is it that made us suspect this, even on this subconscious level. And I think Wolf is showing us that. He's, we are surely going to get the officer in later interludes working through why he has some hesitation about the relationship between these documents, the question of whether or not they're all written by the same author. Surely we'll see him working through that soon. Well, I can't wait to get to it. And I think we can put that question to rest for now, though we'll return to something like it in our final discussion discussion question. But in the meantime, I just want to ask you what you make of this odd hero's journey that Marsh of the notebook is making. Wolf, in my mind, is leaning heavily on, you know, adventure or quest story tropes. And in this section, we have Marsh meeting the hermit in the hut, who will give him the directions to meet his goal and overcome his objective. What is going on with this story here? You know, is Wolf just playing with us? This is explicitly like the the person meeting the hermit in the woods, which is something we actually came across in Fifth Head in the section of the Rime of the Ancient Mariner that Wolf uses for his epigram. I think it's just a bit of fun, but what do you think is going on here? And of course, Wolf is giving us the story of Dr. Marsh on St. Anne out of order. And the hero's journey archetype is all about hitting these plot points or hitting these necessary steps in a real formulaic way. When you tell that story out of order, it obfuscates that someone is going through the hero's journey. But you're absolutely right to point out that here he is at the recluse, the the hermit, the wise old man who's going to give him some wisdom that he needs in order to uh, carry out, fulfill his mission, accomplish his task. That is also wrapped up in the component of the hero's journey, which is the gathering of allies, which is often the gathering of supernatural or magical allies. And we know because we have been given early April already, and here we are back in late March, we know that 
something that is going to result from this incident is that Marsh is going to acquire an ally in VRT, in the son of the, the hermit here living beneath the boat. It's you know yet to be seen if there's anything magical or supernatural about him, but we are meant to be wondering about the claims that he is half Yanis, which I think would tick that box. And that really leads me to the question of Marsh's motivations as well, which is that he doesn't care if this hermit in the hut is a counterfeit. And I wonder if the combination of uh, Marsh maybe imagining himself as part of this hero's journey and the fact that he's already lost his way before he even ticked the most crucial box, which is like the the old man who gives you the treasure map, who's like, go and and find this, you know, the three, uh, the the knights in the cave who give Indiana Jones the, the right grail, the right clues to accomplish what he's accomplishing. Is Marsh even vigilant enough? Is he savvy enough to meet his objective? We saw in the April journal entries, the fact that he can't see right. If VRT is right, Marsh should have been seeing shadow children or magical trees or this or that. Is there something deficient with Marsh that he is the wrong person to go on this journey? The journey that he's even undertaking is the reverse journey that Sandwalker takes in a story by John V. Marsh, at least in the sense of the direction that they're traveling along the river. But there is also a sense in which they're the same journey in that they are both making for the cave in the Gorge of Thunder always. And of course, Sandwalker's whole journey is very much in the archetype of the hero's journey. It is full of magic and supernatural mysteries that we still haven't fully resolved ourselves. And it is the classic story of a young man, an adolescent, whose eyes are opened to what the world is like, to how magical and supernatural it is, as he leaves the comfort of his very mundane normality, his family unit. But Marsh is coming at this journey with cynicism and almost a, a world weariness, though he's you know, only... 10 or 15 years older than uh, Sandwalker in that story. And it seems that all of that blinds him to the magic and supernatural elements that are around him. Uh, That might be a bit of a metaphor, but I think it is absolutely fair to say that he is blind to the beauty that surrounds him, or even just to what it is that surrounds him at all. We saw that extensively in our last section in the section that is these uh, April entries from the the journal. But VRT is not blind to these things. And I wonder who it is that's actually having the hero's journey in this story. Is it Dr. Marsh, the protagonist? Or is VRT the person who's having a kind of hero's journey here, who's getting to go into the back of beyond and is uh, seeing the, the magic and the supernatural elements what, is VRT on some quest that was given to him by his father that we're just not privy to? Use this man, use Dr. Marsh, his money and his guns and his mules to get to the sacred cave that we can't reach by our boat. 
That's a fantastic question and, and definitely something to keep in mind. The John Marsh who writes a story by John V. Marsh is alert and aware to all of these types of things. Perhaps the the hero's journey that John Marsh is going on is, is kind of overcoming himself in some way. And that this quest, his lack of vigilance on in terms of really trying to determine the truth, his shaking of his desire for status and recognition, all of that is going to lead him to a place of, of more wholeness. But perhaps it will take him being in prison for a long time for him to get there. And his reflection on these things is what allows him to write, to become the John Marsh who writes a story. I don't know that we've met that John Marsh yet. And they may not be the same person. That's something that's certainly being hinted at here in the story. The officer suspects that the voices are not the same. There's this question about why VRT seems to have the same physical characteristics of the Dr. Marsh that we meet in the fifth head of Cerberus. Uh, and also we should say that the, the Dr. Marsh who is recording this journal on St. Anne, who wrote those April entries from the last section of the story that we tackled, also commented on the greenness of VRT's eyes. That might suggest that Dr. Marsh himself doesn't actually have green eyes. Uh, You and I both have blue eyes. I never think about the shade of your eyes, but when I see someone who has very green eyes or very brown eyes or hazel or something, I do often notice that. But because I have the color of eyes that you do, I never notice your eyes. That might not be universally applicable, but that's something that's hinted at here in in the text. And I do want to emphasize something that I don't think we've emphasized in quite a long time. We have no evidence that John V. Marsh is Dr. Marsh. Dr. Marsh has no first name. He is only Dr. Marsh. The only instance of John V. Marsh in this book is in the title of the second novella. This could be someone who lives on Earth and has nothing to do with this story. Maybe this person lives on Ryza or is the captain of a starship in the United Federation of Planets or something. That's... Uh, uh, hyperbolic to, but to prove to demonstrate my point, which is that we still don't know what the relationship between Dr. Marsh and the author of that second novella is and who John V. Marsh is. And I think we're getting closer to finding out. Right. That's an excellent point. And it, and it really leads into my last question, my last discussion note here, which is exactly what you brought up, that the green eyes, the pale complexion, the dark hair is the exact description of Dr. Marsh from Fifth Head of Cerberus from the first novella. And when you combine that with the identity confusion that's going on at the end of a story with John Eastwin and John Sandwalker losing their identity to one another, it raises some questions in my mind. Like, like what is it that matters more? Is it the belief in something, the overwhelming belief that something is the case, or is it its objective reality? And, and this is really demonstrated by the parable, the fable, if you will, at the end of a story where it really doesn't matter which John lives, whether it's Eastwind or Sandwalker, because they believe they're the same person. 
And this seems to be an overwhelming theme of this story, the objective observer and the subjective facts. And what we're seeing is somebody who's got a strong subjective belief being thrown up against a kind of objective, impersonal system. So in a sense, it's the, it's the same question that we asked at the end of Fifth Head, which is, does it matter whether the abos are real or whether they're the best way to create resonance with the theme of the problems that this family has? And I'm wondering if something similar is going on here. Does it matter which Dr. Marsh is the original Dr. Marsh? Because what we're dealing with is a complicated situation of perhaps two Dr. Marshes. And it could be that he's gone insane, that somehow VRT has claimed this identity or something else entirely. So I don't know, Glenn, I, I threw a lot at you. What do you, what do you think of that? Both, uh, both of the first novellas share a plot point, which is about one character killing another in order to take his identity. This is what number five contemplates doing. It's what he is attempting to do at the end of the fifth head of Cerberus. He doesn't succeed. He is caught and he is sent to prison for his crime. But what he wants to do is kill his father and then pretend to be his father. And this is essentially the same thing that goes on with the two brothers at the end of a story by John V. Marsh. I think if you're writing a trilogy of novellas that are meant to be tied in together in order to fo- form in order to form a coherent novel, you you might put that plot point in the third one as well. So perhaps that might be what's going on here that uh this person who is in prison claiming to be Dr. Marsh is perhaps not Dr. Marsh at all, which is also perhaps why there's this question about whether or not the person in prison came from earth dr marsh came from earth but there might be something about this person they have in prison that suggests to them that this is a person from saint anne i think we know it's not dna testing because we saw that that's not something the legal system on san qua does but it might be some other thing Yeah, it's certainly a question to keep in mind. And as in the first book, we had a character who was fully aware that he was not the other person. He Number five knows he's not his father, though objectively, as Dr. Marsh suggests, he might be his father. And that might be a claim we want to reexamine as we get to the end of this story is you're actually the same person. Your uh, identity is the same. And in, in... a story by John V. Marsh, we have two characters who believe they're the same person and the reader knows they're objectively different. I wonder what we're going to get at the end of this story. What kind of mentality our characters will have as we'll see as they continue on their hero's journey, as perhaps they become involved in ways um, that I'm still expecting to be surprised by. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, they, they, there are variations here between the what's going on with this question of identity in these first two novellas. So perhaps we might expect there to be another variation rather than the repetition of a formula here in the third novella. So perhaps the question here is, does VRT even exist? Do we have a sort of fight club thing going on here where VRT where Dr. Marsh thinks that he's hanging around with some uh, 
adolescent boy, some teenager who's really good at doing uh, things like making fires and appreciating the beauty of the world, but who it turns out may not actually exist at all, that he may be a, a fabrication of uh, a mentally unwell Dr. Marsh, and that maybe that's the confusion that's happening here in the prison and is why the officer is looking at these texts, that one person thinks he's actually two people. It's certainly possible, at least as far as we know. And uh, I mean, when you think about the inclusion of the drug of the shadow children and what that does to them, it's possible that consciousness that Dr. Marsh has gone into the wilderness, he's gone bushwhacking to search for this aboriginal people and has lost his way and started eating magic plants (laughs) that have split his consciousness. That seems like a plausible solution to this question as well. There's a lot for us to keep our eye on, as we found in every episode, as we keep going forward with VRT. And at this point, we are only in the middle of this novella. We're in really what amounts to the second act of it. And I think that is part of what has led to our transition into wild speculation here about what is going on. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing which direction this story goes, if it goes in any of these directions that we've predicted it might. Yeah, and I hope you... Our listeners have found uh, some joy in listening to our speculation if you're reading this along with us for the first time. But on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums to pick apart our mad theories of what's happening in VRT at this point. And... Just let us know if you have any thoughts about this legal system, the distinction between what we see in this section of VRT and what we've experienced in the past in Fifth Ed of Cerberus. Next time, we're going to tackle the biggest chunk of this story that we're going to do at once. We're going to be reading pages 192 to 217 of the 1994 Orb Edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.